Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, an associate professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Professor Emily Oster, a professor of economics at Brown University. We're going to discuss her new book, The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. Okay, so Emily, welcome. It's, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, um, it's, uh, you know, I've been following your books for uh, for years now, although unfortunately your kids are just like two years younger than mine. So your your advice is always a little bit, comes just a little bit after I actually wanted it. Very um, frustrating. Yes, then you just find out what you did wrong or exactly, right. Exactly, but, or what I shouldn't have worried about. I feel like that's, to jump ahead a little bit, That that's my main takeaway from a lot of the books is like, probably shouldn't worry so much about all these things because there's not a perfect solution and, and the data does not actually, contrary to all the strong opinions on the playground from the other parents, the data does not really give us, you know, an ironclad, um, you know, this will destroy your child kind of answer. Um, but yeah, anyway, I'm stealing your thunder. So um, yeah, anyway, but, but right. so you've done two books now on um, sort of related topics, uh, focusing on um, earlier phases of life, you know, uh, pregnancy and early childhood and, uh, you know, what the, what the data tells us about. Um, so what is this book about? Why do we need uh, one more book? Didn't you already teach us everything that economists have to teach us about thinking about this stuff? Maybe. Um, but th- this book is about uh, older kids. And so it's really about the sort of phase of life where your kids are what I call the early school years. So kind of like the ages of five to, to 12. Um, and, you know, I think it shares features with the with the earlier books in the sense that there's a fair amount of data. And, you know, in this case, it's data about um, about things like schools and extracurriculars and uh, sleep and, and food, sort of a lot of the things that come up in these um, in these older kid areas. Uh, but but a lot of the book is also about um, decision making and thinking deliberately about the logistics and the um, the kind of lifestyle that your family wants to have. And in some ways, that's a little bit, it's a little different than, than the other books. It's a little different from the, from the data piece. Um, but I think it is especially important in this era of life in which the sort of reactive parenting that maybe we did more of when our kids were little, it, it can be more complicated because the logistics get, get more, uh, more diverse, more confusing, and so some some of the book is really about trying to help parents kind of work through that that piece. Okay, well that definitely sounds useful. I know our our I have three kids, so our life is a kind of constant scramble of uh, kind of trying to keep track of things and and trade off. You know, do we want to invest in you know this extracurricular or that activity or like how important is it to take care of? I mean, at this point, like, especially with COVID, it's like, do I even need to do a dentist appointment with him? Like right now, could I wait a few months? Cause that's just so many other things to do. Um, but uh, so tell us, uh, tell us about your framework, the four F's. So, uh, so the four F's, um, the, the idea is that, you know, as a, as a kind of family decision-making unit, uh, we often face decisions or we sometimes at least face big decisions and it, the four F's is a way to structure our approach to those decisions. And so I think sometimes um, we are stuck at the moment of like, I, I don't know how to how to make this choice or how to think about this choice. And so the idea here is to have some kind of structure. And this particular structure starts with the idea of framing the question, of being very explicit about the choices that you have, 
and actually outlining, you know, should I do X or Y? Should I do the first thing or the second thing? Not, you know, what should I do, which is not a specific enough question to really be answerable. So you kind of think about exactly what your question is and then do some fact finding, some information gathering. Some of that may be about logistics. Some of that may be about data. Some of that may be about what your kids want to do. There's like a lot of pieces that come into this. The idea is to get to a place where you know all the information that you could need to try to make this decision. The third step is final decision uh, to set a time, to set a, a sort of moment at which your family is going to actually make this choice. And the reason I tell people to be explicit about that is because I think especially when choices are hard, it can be tempting to just never make them, to just keep getting more information and more information and, and thinking about it and thinking about this and thinking about that. And if you have a plan that says there's going to be a moment at which I have all the information I think is relevant and I'm going to sit down and with it all together with the decision makers and we're going to make a decision it is then uh, easier to move on. And then the last piece is follow-up. You know, I think in a lot of our parenting decisions, we get into a place where the, we start to think every decision we make, we're only going to have to make once. We're only going to make it, and then we're not going to go back and think about it again. But there's actually, a, in a lot of the things we do, I think there's an, a need to, at some point, think about whether it was the right decision. And I think if we plan to do that, if we say, okay, we're going to enroll in this extracurricular, but then at the end of the year, we're going to discuss, was that the right thing to do? If we plan that follow-up, uh, it we run less of a risk of sort of all ending up kind of at the end of the day, doing something that we didn't, that we, that we all thought was a bad idea, but we were only doing because we did it before. So that's the four Fs. That's interesting. I was thinking what, with uh, the three Fs, the, I, I was actually initially thinking you were saying more like um, making a decision and then stopping thinking about it. Cause I certainly know for myself and many other, you know, neurotic analytical people, there's kind of, it's, it's not that you don't make the decision. Some decisions, you know, you kind of have to make cause you have to move forward, but then you can kind of always keep changing your mind or, or, you know, thinking about it again, like, Oh, should we have done that? Maybe we should do something different. Let's gather more data and uh, kind of keep being preoccupied with it when, when maybe it's better to move on. Yeah, I mean, I I think these things are not in conflict in the sense that I think what you're doing is you haven't really made a decision there. So there's a moment of kind of saying, I'm going to make a decision and then I'm going to move on. But instead of revisiting that decision every three days, when some other thing comes up, I'm going to set a time to revisit. I'm going to explicitly decide. I will revisit this decision. I'm going to get a chance to revisit this decision in blah, blah, blah timeframe. And at that point, I will get to think about it again. And I think having that may mean that you're less tempted to revisit the decision in every moment because you're going to kind of revisit it in this. You have a plan to revisit it. You have an opportunity to worry about it later. Right. So giving yourself, giving yourself leeway to just say, yeah, just not, not think about everything all the time, but, but, but by, by having planned when it will happen, then you, you don't have to think about it in the meantime. Um, so why don't you, uh, you know, uh, as you mentioned that, you know, the book is motivated kind of by your experience teaching MBAs um, earlier in your career and um, kind of those kinds of frameworks. So, uh, and of course, MBAs are famous for for being really into case studies. And I think pedagogically, well, to the extent that any educational theory, you know, uh, educational research is, can be a little bit spotty, but it seems like people remember stories. So uh, I, I love that you start in your book um, with the example, a case study of uh, thinking about red shirting your kids in kindergarten. 
Um, and just for listeners, if you're interested in this topic personally, um, uh, well, you should buy the book, but also uh, uh, Emily has a, a short version of that on her newsletter, which is, I think it's free and um, it is free and, and archived. So you can just go there and get the uh, the quick version of this. But um, but first, uh, why don't you why don't you talk us through like how do we how do we apply the four Fs in the context of this this redshirting decision? Yeah, so let's sort of start by just setting the stage for people who do not have uh, who have have no idea what you're talking what we're talking about. So the so redshirting is the idea of holding your kid um, back a year from kindergarten, so keep keeping them out and entering them in in school later. Um, and this has become sort of more common over time. So it used to be basically everyone just kind of started school when they were supposed to start school, but it is now, you know, I think more common for families to decide they're going to hold their kid back. And, and, you know, the idea there is then they will be older, they'll be more ready for kindergarten. The, the traditional use of red shirt is in college sports where the idea is to be physically larger so you can hit people harder in football. Um, I don't think that's what people are aiming for in, in kindergarten red shirting, but the, the idea of sort of being bigger, being older is, is, is in there. So, um, so I sort of suggest to people, okay, why don't you start by, start by framing the question, start by thinking about, um, is this really a, a kind of viable option or is this, is this really a question we need to ask? So, uh, one, one way to think about that is, you know, should the question is, should I hold my kid back now, uh, and enter them a year later, or should I enter them now? And even sort of asking it like that, you you also want to take into account, well, what else would they do? What's the thing they're going to do if they're not in, in school? So already by just asking the question explicitly, should I do should I answer them now? Should I answer them later? You're sort of forced to think about, okay, if I answer them later, like what do they what do they do now? And you may also be forced to confront that actually your school district may not allow this. So maybe that the school you've chosen for your kid won't let you do this, or maybe they're forcing you to do this. So there's there's sort of some value in just saying what you're asking. Then you have the second step about fact-finding. And this is a place where um, the data is kind of interesting. So on the one hand, the kind of like, what would be the value to your kid going into school earlier? Most of that value is mechanical um, in in the sense that if your kid enters school earlier, they will uh, leave school earlier. Uh, so they will have an additional year of earnings. If we sort of think about our goal as somehow maximizing lifetime earning potential, um, which I just want to be clear, I don't think is most people's goal, but it is a goal one can well, have. We can think of it as like you can retire one year earlier and then maybe spend uh, spend a little bit more time with your kids at the end of life too. That would be maybe more appear less materialistic uh, way of framing kind of the same issue. Yeah, or you have yeah. So I think that's. Um, I think that's that's fair. So at any rate, you're sort of like everything gets moved up a year um, in this uh, in this in this world. Um, and so I think that's kind of the big sort of argument uh, for sending your kid on time, other than just that that's the default. So I think there's you know there's a sense in which like we should assume that you're going to send your kid on time unless there's some reason, some sort of com- compelling or notable reason not to. When we look at you know what would be the evidence for what would be the reason for redshirting, um, you know I think that the the, the kind of, this is a very hard, hard question to answer um, for reasons that I think, you know, will not be surprising to you, Peter, uh, which is that they, you know, the, you can't just compare kids who entered school at different ages because the age of entry is endogenous. So it's not really possible to just say, okay, let me compare the older kids to the younger kids, because of course it wasn't random who's old and young. So the best kind of research on this is using differences in birth dates. 
is to using the fact that um, that you know kids who are born in uh, in August are on average going to enter school younger if there's a September start date than kids who are born in January because most kids do enter at the default time. And so then studies have tried to evaluate the impacts for kids or the outcomes for kids rather across these different birth months. And, you know, and when they do that, what they find, I think the most striking thing for me is the, is the fact that diagnoses of, uh, of ADHD and other behavioral um, issues of that nature are much higher for kids who enter younger. Um, and that because we're sort of interpreting that causally, we can kind of interpret it as the idea that um, we can interpret it as suggesting that it is the fact that they entered younger that is resulting in the ADHD diagnoses, not, uh, not that not some other endogenous thing. And so I think that, you know, that's a, that is a potential argument for, for red shirting. Does that make sense? Yeah. Although actually I just, I mean, as an, as an aside, I mean, I think, I think if I remember correctly, those studies were raised or certainly when I've seen news media versions of them, which may not be right. Uh, one of the, one of the takeaways from there also is that a lot of the ADHD diagnoses, basically they're diagnosing p- people for being young, squirmy kids, which some people may be because actually their chronological age is a little bit less, which is you know what they're pointing out there. So if you just take a younger kid they, and put them in a higher grade, they look they look ADHD when actually they're just younger. Um, which, uh, but anyway, that's a that's a longer debate on like you know the the role of uh, of ADHD diagnoses. Uh, but but I think that's an interesting aside. But yeah, but the fact that they are yeah that anyway w- whether whether you want to medicalize it or or not or you know prescribe anything for that yeah. It's, it's very, seems like a st- strong piece of evidence that like, if you put really young kids in a class, you know, you can phrase it more neutrally and just say they engage in disruptive behaviors and have a harder time with school. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, it's particularly um, the, the sort of impacts on diagnoses are, are particularly large if the kid is young relative to the rest of the class, which is kind of exactly what you're saying, that it's like, you know, if you're a five-year-old in a class with a bunch of five-year-olds, then your, your sort of like age appropriate squirmy behavior seems like everyone else's. If you're a five-year-old in a class of a bunch of kids who are almost seven, then your squirminess seems uh, kind of out of, out of line. Um, and that, you know, has these, these knock-on effects. And, you know, I want to be clear, like there, you know, there, there's a lot of reason that it's good that we evaluate kids for, for, you know, behavioral issues like ADHD, because then we can get them, um, you know, assistance and improve their, their outcomes in school. So this is none of this is to say that, you know, we don't want to be, uh, we don't want to be paying attention to those, um, you know, those, those diagnoses, but just that we, we don't probably want to be diagnosing kids solely on the basis of the fact that they are younger, um, because that's not, you know, that, that isn't, um, likely to be a good idea. Right. Sorry. I, yeah, and I should say for my part, like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound too dismissive. Like I realize there are serious problems that people have that, you know, uh, need to be addressed, but yeah, the fact that sometimes, Right. This, uh, there, sometimes these behaviors really are more about youth than than about age. Just means you need to be careful in figuring out, yeah, what exactly. what is really coming from and how to how to address it. But anyway, exactly. back to the question of like back to know, the question. Okay, so in kindergarten, yeah. <laughs> so that's a sort of there's a bunch of facts like that, and then I would also say, you know, in this por- in this sort of fact finding portion, there is a fair amount of like logistical questions around your individual family. You know, how feasible is this really? You know, how how do you kind of think about how this would would work in your sort of particular family structure? And then there's a there's a question of sort of making the decision, um, and I think that uh, that there you can sort of take this data and like many of these things 
in this era of life. You sort of take the data, but the data is only a piece of it. It needs to be combined in some ways with both the other logistical things, but also characteristics of your kid. You know, this kind of concern, sort of what we get out of the data is that the the biggest concerns involve, you know, some kind of overreaction, something to a kid who is relatively young, who is having trouble sitting still uh, and sort of having trouble with with kind of those types of control things. And that may or may not be something that you think is a risk for your kids, right? So some people will tell me, you know, look, I have a, a, a kid with a summer birthday who's like, you know, already like really able to focus and sit still and they've been doing this in pre-K. It's like, then this is probably not, um, you know, a relevant, uh, a, a relevant consideration. But on the other hand, if you have a kid who you think is going to be more in the space of, of kind of being potentially disruptive, that's a stronger argument. So I think those kind of putting those things together it, it is the kind of way to triangulate into this uh, decision. Um, and then I talk a little bit about the idea of follow-up there and kind of what do we mean by follow-up in that in that setting. Um, and I think part of that is recognizing, you know, that that particularly if you do send your kid early on, sort of like send your kid at the sort of normal time when they're relatively young, you know, there, there are potentially opportunities to sort of like to, to have them do kindergarten twice or do first grade twice or something if that is if that turns out to be um, something that's that's a concern. So those are that's kind of the case study arc of, of that example. So so that, that raises a question for me. Um, with, with the fact finding, um, I mean, obviously part of it, as you mentioned, it, an important part of it is is how, you know, what works for your own family and what are, you know, and thinking hard about really, you know, what is your kid as opposed to like generalizations from some kind of studies. But also, how do you, how should, um, so, you know, you and I are social science PhDs, so we obsess about this all the time, but like, you know, I assume most of your readers are, you know, more like, you know, NPR listening, New York Times reading, you know, educated people, but they're not necessarily trained in in studying medical or social science research. So how, how if you're if you're that kind of person, how do you figure out? Obviously, if 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 uh, Professor Oster has written a book on it, you read that book or that chapter. But if there's not, how do you figure out like what is the credible research on a topic like which? Because, you know, there's always these headlines like bouncing you this way and that. So like, how do I synthesize which, which headlines are BS and which ones are are not if I'm not a, a trained specialist? Yeah, I mean, I think that that question is hard. People ask me that a lot. And I think it's not, um, you know, it's not an easy question. In some sense, I've like built an entire career on the idea that that, uh, you know, there's some expertise that goes into trying to read these things and um, and and digest them. Um, you know, I think the a couple of sort of very broad points, the most important of which is it is almost never a good idea to respond to a single headline. And that, you know, in, in general, when you are doing this kind of um, sort of information gathering or trying to figure out what the evidence says, it is, uh, there is value in, in kind of trying to figure out what all the evidence says. And I don't exactly know how people uh, people do that other than to say that, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that by saying what is the most recent headline that I've seen about this says, as opposed to sort of what is the arc of the, of the data. And, you know, then there are ways within individual studies to kind of think about, okay, you know, is this randomized? How good a job does this study do on causality? And I think those are, those are kind of standard questions to ask. Again, they're not always super easy to, they're not always super, super easy to answer. Okay. Yeah, it is. Well, yeah, it definitely is challenging. I was just thinking about one random example from my own life. Like I remember for some reason when I was first starting in my, my, PhD that uh, 
yeah, I was just reading, you know, some health magazine or something. And there, the advice was, you know, it's like people need more antioxidants and Hey, there's lots of antioxidants in blackberries. So eating some blackberry jam every day would be a good thing. And that's just like, you know, you're thinking about like, and, and I, and I kind of took it seriously for like a couple of days and I was like, well, wait a minute, but then there's sugar. Like, and then like, and you know, what, how can this be, you know, I can't just smear blackberry jam on things. It doesn't, is there actually even an effect of this? And like, but I, I still catch myself. I mean, even now, you know, I'm, I'm an adult who, you know, tries to think systematically in this and, you know, but, but I still catch myself like seeing a headline being like, Oh, okay, I should do that. And then like, you go back and like, wait a minute, you know? Um, and, and then if you actually look at the studies, not the account of the study written by someone on a deadline who, you know, uh, majored in English and, you know, just needed to find a job, then like you really, really start to question a lot of, um, these things. Um, and then on top of that, uh, my other pet peeve, especially now, now that Twitter is so ubiquitous, is like headline writers aren't even the person who reported the article. So you've got this, like the person right. reporting the article is synthesizing the research based on a press release and by, written by a press release person, possibly for the scientist. And they're synthesizing the press release. And then the person who puts the headline on it is trying to maximize clicks based on what they, how they understood or misunderstood the article. And in my experience, it seems like the more mis- the more they misunderstand the article, the more dramatic their headline will be, and therefore the more people will discuss it, and the more more clicks you'll get. So it's almost like all all perverse incentives. The incentives the are very poor. Yeah, I yeah. totally I totally agree. But it's all. I mean, I mean, I I'm totally with you. It's hard not to respond to some of those things, particularly on diet. I find that diet stuff is both very poor and also just like very tempting to listen to. Yes, because. Not many of us feel like our diet is perfect. Right. Um, so uh, so why don't you talk me through, um, just because it's one I'm thinking about, talk me through what uh, your chapter on extracurriculars. What, uh, what, do you, what do you discuss in that one, since that's uh, something that's very relevant for older kids? And honestly, even like, you know, not just up through 12, but going through, through high school. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, I talk a lot in the, in the, the chapter on extracurriculars, you know, I talk about like individual things and, you know, what are we kind of, d- is doing music going to make your kid good at math or, you know, like is doing sports going to make your kid, you know, in, like very healthy in, in the long term. But, you know, I think that there's, um, there are a lot of reasons people think about enrolling their kids in, in extracurriculars. And there is this sort of pre-professional nature of a lot of extracurriculars of late where some of the reasoning seems to be things like, you know, I should enroll my kid in in this thing because like then they get to do this in college and this is like their key to some to college or whatever it is. Um, and you play, play and, you French know, horn and play lacrosse and uh, especially if you're from California and applying to an East Coast school because no one here plays lacrosse except in a few very pricey enclaves. So if you're not in that enclave and you play lacrosse, you can really stand out. So it doesn't matter if you like the sport. It's exactly the kind of logic that like, yeah, it's exactly the kind of, but the thing is, if you sort of think about that and you push it to its logical extreme, like your kid is probably not going to play lacrosse at college. That's probably not the thing. Like there's not that many people who play lacrosse at college and, you know, thinking, sort of thinking about what sports to enroll your kid in or what activities to enroll them in when they're eight because of some idea about the like balance of lacrosse players in California versus the East coast, like college sports teams, like that's not, it's probably not a great reason to do, to do lacrosse. But the great Um, sports players all start early. And if, you know, if it's a choice between like my kid gets to go to Harvard because they played lacrosse versus like having to 
uh, you know, go to, actually, I'm not going to name another university because I have friends everywhere and they'll all be upset, but like somewhere less, less famous. Um, and, uh, you know, because they actually like played a sport that they were interested in, or maybe even like played more video games than sports. I mean, shouldn't I do lacrosse? I think that what I'm saying is that I think the delta on your kid goes to Harvard and plays lacrosse from enrolling them in a lot of lacrosse is extremely small because unless you know something that, you know, other, other people don't, your kid is probably not going to be good enough at lacrosse to have that be the reason that they go to, uh, whatever college you have, you have in mind. Yeah. I suppose Uh, that, and actually what you're just saying, like, you know, what it's also relative to other people. So I think that's, you know, it's kind of like a efficient markets sort of story, which obviously markets are rarely as efficient as, as our, our theories might present them to be. But like, uh, I think that's something for parents to keep in mind too. Like if I think lacrosse, you know, lacrosse and French horn is the key to making my kid stand out in their application essays, then everyone else reading the New York times and obsessing about going to Harvard is also going to do the same thing. And so actually there's going to be way too many, especially like if we're talking on the 10 year time horizon, like everyone's going to pretty much play that one out. And so your, you know, metaphorical arbitrage opportunity, uh, might actually be gone by the time you get there, even if it was. Yeah, and I also think day. like, what, like, what if your kid doesn't, doesn't like to play lacrosse? Like that, you know, this is, this is them too. Right. I mean, I think we have to be a little careful as, as parents sometimes about like, what are our dreams and what are our kids dreams? And, you know, we can sort of say, well, I'm doing this because I think that like the, you know, but I think that like the way for them to be a successful adult is that they went to Harvard. But you know what? Like a lot of people who didn't go to Harvard are also successful adults. Not everybody who went to Harvard is a successful adult. Like, you know, I think that there is, um, you know, and I, I am, of course, a, probably a participant in some, you know, I don't proponent is the wrong word, but like, you know, I think that I, I talk a lot to an audience of parents who I think are exactly in this space of kind of being very engaged with this type of, of achievement. But I think that there is probably a, a reason we should push back sometimes on, on that kind of stuff, because I'm not sure it's always, not sure it's always the, the healthiest thing. Yeah. And again, just to defend myself. I'm, I'm being a little bit of a devil's advocate here. I'm not actually, no, I agree. I'm, you know, look, I'm, I'm not I, looking for I, your yeah. kid out on the lacrosse pitch or whatever field. I don't know. What yeah. It's been an interesting, you know, it's an interesting balance to try to, I, I love that phrase, by the way, what are our dreams and what are our kids dreams? I think that's, that's really important. Actually, like when, when, um, yeah, I saw some of the, you know, initial, uh, instant reactions again, mainly to the title of the book or like, you know, the, the press blurb, um, saying, oh, you know, another Tiger Mom book. So so why don't you articulate? I think you you did very well right there, but but tell me more about like, I mean, even the Tiger Mom for, you know, there was a lot of it. There were a lot of elements where that she was, I think, more tongue in cheek than than it came off in the, the press release version. But 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 even like putting that in caricature, how would you distinguish yourself from that caricature that people have in their minds of that the whole Tiger Mom idea? How is this book different? So it's, it's interesting. So I don't think I don't think of this book as you know. I think of the sort of tiger mom idea as the idea that like somehow like I'm gonna like like this is about making my kid achieve, and I can see why there's a parallel because I think that that some of sort of some of the family firm books seems like okay this is about like making our family like efficient, um, but the goal of the sort of like making our family efficient or making our family work better in this case is actually not about sort of getting your kid to to achieve something. I think it's much more about sort of crafting a like using structure to craft a life that you that you like. And so let me give you one sort of 
kind of weird example because people sometimes ask me like, well, what if I'm a really flexible person? What if I'm a person who just wants to like be flexible and do fun stuff? And like, I'm not like a, like a weirdo business school professor like you, like what is wrong with you? Um, when you have kids this age, and let's say that as part of your like flexible like lifestyle, you want every weekend to be free. You want it to be the case that when you guys get up in the morning on Saturday, you don't want any structure. You don't want to be going to soccer games and violin lessons and other stuff. Like you just want to like be able to get up. And if you guys want to like, you know, drive off to some like, you know, overnight camping hike or go to the beach or do like do whatever, like you want that to be free. And I think that's like awesome. If you don't articulate that and you don't decide that that is a priority for your family, then many weekends with school age kids, you will wake up and be like, let's go to the beach. And your kids will be like, I have to be at Dave and Buster's at, you know, Phil's birthday party at two. And the other kid will be like, oh, but I have this other thing. This And so somehow like because one time you agreed to do the birthday party at Dave and Buster's like six weeks ago when you weren't thinking about it because you hadn't said I want every weekend free you then somehow find that you you haven't achieved that. And so I think in some ways, a lot of the book is about saying, hey, you need to decide what is going to be important to you. And not just in this big picture kind of like value sense, but also in terms of like the day to day, like what are the things that you want to do? And it sounds really clinical to say you should like write that down. But if you write it down, then you are in a position to, you are in a better position to, to accomplish it. Um, and I think that's really the pitch here. The pitch is not like, you know, make sure you're scheduled so your kids can get like both French horn and lacrosse in on the same day because you've done such a great job with your spreadsheets. It may be that what you want to do with your spreadsheets is just decide, you know, we're not doing anything on the weekends except hanging out together. Uh, but actually saying that can help you make that a reality, not just like some dream that you have. Right. So it's just, yeah, starting with, yeah, starting with that big picture and, going from there. I think, I think that does, you know, differ from kind of a sort of narrow view of how people treat economics kind of optimization, or maybe, you know, how it kind of was for some people like kind of the fifties rocket science era, where like, we just need the right equation. We can like trade off, you know, assign this many utility points to, uh, you know, soccer practice and this many utility points to reading the newspaper and this many utility points to like having time to cook a fancy breakfast. And then we will, you know, we will optimize and we just need to, I think when you, when you mentioned spreadsheets, I think people start to imagine you're actually like running the numbers in some sense. Right. No, actually it's not so much, it's just that you can put your, your daily schedule in a, in a, in a thing that looks like a spreadsheet. Okay. So, so then, so, so maybe to take another tack to what, uh, obviously the data analysis part is, is very, um, I mean, it's economics, it's also, you know, statistics and epidemiology, obviously lots of people think about that, but it's definitely a strength of economics, but like in other respects, like, what you're saying, like, just be deliberate or what's the phrase people are like to say intentional a lot nice days. Like that seems to be a catchphrase. You have to be intentional. And so I feel like I could maybe rewrite a chunk of your book and make it a pop psychology book. So like, it, what, what about it makes it economics-y as opposed to uh, just, you know, good kind of self-organizing and prioritizing things that are just true general in general? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that I would. um, I'm not, I'm not sure there's really anything like that. Right. So I think, you know, there, there's this sort of idea that we're in these like disciplinary boxes, but I'm not sure that we, you know, we really need to be, I mean, this is a book about sort of with a, with a take on kind of decision-making and on, um, on sort of 
on structure and then a bunch of stuff on data. And I think of economics because where I come from as like a, a sort of great field for thinking about decisions and thinking about, um, you know, and thinking about data and thinking about weighing costs and benefits and, and sort of accepting the idea of trade-offs. And I think that is pretty central to a lot of these choices here that, you know, there's a, if you're doing X, you can't do Y. And, you know, there may be a trade-off between like, you know, nighttime chess club and sleep and that you're going to have to kind of recognize that trade-off. But I'm not sure that, um, that there's sort of, that the lines are so crisp between, uh, you know, could, like, could, is some of this sort of like social psychology, is some of it like sociology, like there's, you know, there's data in all, from, from all of those fields in the stuff that I, um, you know, that I'm writing about. So I don't think there's anything like super economics centric about, about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's my feeling. I was just reminded of, uh, I think it was a quote from Robert Heinlein, which I read decades ago, but um, uh, I remember the, the science fiction writer. And he, I think at some point he he had a character say, talk about how they had a favorite astrologer or, and they said, and they, they said, I don't believe in astrology, but the thing is like, when you get someone who's an expert, who's really thought about like giving good advice, it doesn't matter whether they think they're a psychotherapist or they think they're an astrologer. And obviously it's a very extreme example, but like if there's someone who's perceptive and kind of can organize their thoughts and knows how people work, they'll probably give you good advice anyway, no matter what framework they're coming from. I'm not actually going to go read my horoscope now, but um, I think it's uh, it's an extreme version of uh, sort of what, what I think you're saying. Yeah. And I mean, I think there are, you know, I'm sorry, I was talking to somebody last night and and they were explaining sort of like a version of, of kind of the advice that I had given that they had gotten effectively from their marital therapist, right? It was like, well, you know, the therapist said, so I was like, yeah, that's like, that's very similar. It's not exactly the same. The frame is a little bit, uh, is a little bit different, but the sort of basic insights and the sort of basic idea of like good decision-making um, is, it's not, like, a lot of people can have that, those kind of, can have those kind of insights. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so another, um, you know, Twitter pushback thing that, that uh, struck me is people felt that um, there were some people who, feel, who felt like it was, it was just too much like that. This is, you know, all the spreadsheeting and organizing and, and prioritizing and family meetings one after another, like, you know, they're saying, Oh, you know, this, this is fe- feasible for like, you know, families that are basically, you know, stable and facing, you know, the usual small scale crises of life. But like, you know, once you get like a severe, you know, medical or health problem or, you know, financial crisis, then there's just no way you could do any of this. It's all going to be out the window. Um, so, you know, would, what do you, what do you think of that? Is this like too much to, to ask of people just, or, or should everyone be aspiring to do this? So, I mean, I think there's sort of two, two parts of that. So one is like, you know, like with any businessy book, there's a like a pretty elaborate framework. And I think that that it's hard, you know, not everyone is going to do every piece of that. And not everything that I'm sort of arguing could be a part of good decision making is going to be a part of everybody's decision process. And, you know, part of my hope of the book is that people will read it and then, you know, pieces of it will resonate. You say, oh, like, I like this idea of sort of structuring decision making um, and, you know, and thinking about it this way. Or I like this idea of having some you know, basic family policies written down so everybody can sort of implement them. Like there's a bunch of pieces like that. And I am not so naive as to think that like many people are going to have like exactly adopt every worksheet and every, you know, thing that I, um, that I say, but, but, you know, I think that there's a kind of thinking holistically about what parts of this might be, uh, might, might be useful, um, I think has value. 
Um, on the question of, you know, like, like if there, if your life is in, if there's a sort of more chaotic experience at some points, like, will this go out the window for, for sure, some pieces of, you know, everything will go out the window. Um, and, you know, COVID is an obvious example of that. And, you know, we could have all of the, I talk a little bit about this at the end of the book, but I think for a lot of people, you know, you'd say like, we have the structure, we're like, so organized, we don't have our kid, you know, our kids never watch TV, like, that's not part of our you know, that's not part of our big plan. And then COVID came and all of our kids watch TV all the time because like, what are you going to do? Yeah, they have your, get it, get it. You have them in the house. You have to have them watch TV. And so, so in some ways that's an example of sort of things falling, falling apart a little bit. On the other hand, in those times, there is still, I think, value, potentially more value in being able to work through the decisions that come in in a systematic way um, and to be able to, to isolate those decisions and say, okay, you know, let's to move forward. We need to make this choice. We need to make this choice. We need to make this choice. And, you know, in, in the COVID stuff early on, I wrote basically a version of the four F's that was kind of targeted towards the idea of making decisions around family and around childcare in the space of COVID. And I think that that was in fact quite useful to a lot of people even though everyone was dealing with like a tremendous amount of chaos and and sort of crisis management, that there was some, there was, there was value in having a way to work through some of those decisions that was, that was systematic in this way. Yeah, no, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Yeah. And certainly for my family, it's uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, crises make things go out the window, but then also sometimes it make things more complicated. So you need to sort of sit down and figure out like, what are your family priorities and what do you really want to achieve and what can you, you know, if it part of part of achieving those priorities involves like letting a kid watch TV for five hours in a row uh, one day because you just don't have any other options to uh, distract them while you're doing your work that you have to do to pay the bills, then, you know, that's going to happen. Exactly. Um, so uh, so uh, Michael Kavane, who's an pro- econ professor at Santa Clara University, um, suggested a question to me that I thought was fun. And it's actually one that I've been uh, wrestling with, although it's not in your book. So. I was wondering, uh, as an exercise, if you could walk me through this one. So uh, when and how should you tell your kids how much money you make? And obviously not expecting the answer, but like, how do you think mm. about structuring that answer? That's interesting. Um, so, you know, I think there, um, there is a, I, I would sort of take the first step and say, you know, kind of think about framing the question. I think there's a part of that, which is to say, well, like, why, you know, why, like, of course, one version of this question is, you know, should I tell my kids when they're eight? Should I tell my kids when they're 10? Should I tell my kids there? But I think you need to kind of step back first and say, like, what am I trying to achieve with telling them this? Um, You know, why would I tell them? Well, well, I'll say like my, my eight year old is like asking the like, how much money do we make? He's really like, you know, obsessed with money. (laughs) Like just the idea of like, how much money does that pay? How much does this cost? Like, um, so, so part of it is, you know, if they're asking, then how do you respond to that? Yeah. I mean, I'd say, sorry. So, so if they're asking, how do you respond and how does that change with the sort of different, um, you know, with, with different ages, um, you know, I don't think we have a, a great sense in the data of kind of how kids process their own, um, how kids process their own, like sort of sense of privilege or, or lack of privilege, um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, in the end, you're like a little date, you're like a little data sparse on this, uh, little data sparse on this, on this question. Um, and so I think some of it is, is really kind of what is, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a hard question. 
I know it was, it was, uh, I totally sprung that on you. So, you know, obviously, uh, no, no, but it's an interesting, um, and I'm not sure it's in some sense, it's not, it's not exactly the, it's like a different kind of decision because it's really a sort of like an, it's an information real reveal decision. It's more similar to like, what do you say when your kid asks where babies come from? Right. No, that's, that's true. Yeah. And I think, and, and in both cases, there's, yeah, I suppose you could look at data to extent about like how they process this information. Like for instance, my, eight-year-old is not, you know, doing math yet where he can like fully, you know, understand like all the zeros after numbers and like what's, what's more versus less. I think it's kind of, you know, still a little bit loose in his brain. Um, so, so getting into specifics, like he wouldn't fully understand what it did do. And then there's also like, yeah, different issues of like how, how mature are they in terms of like what they would choose to, uh, talk about with friends, um, which, you know, in our society, for whatever reason, it seems like it's, 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 it's safer. It's less controversial to curse and talk about your sex life than to tell people exactly how much money you make. Um, so we have very right. strong social norms around that, which kids, uh, especially younger kids, but you know, uh, at any age might not, uh, might not follow. Um, I mean, there's a general, there's a sort of general principle in a lot of these things, which is like, you know, only like offer small amounts of information. That's not really a database thing. That's just a kind of like general, I think, advice from child psychology is that your kid probably doesn't need as much information as you could conceivably provide. You know, so, so like when they ask where babies come from, a reasonable answer to a five-year-old for that is some version of, well, there's a sperm from the father and there's an egg from another mother and they get together and the baby is, and they make that that's how the, the fertilization happens without having to explain like, how does, like, they may not need to, they may not follow up with, well, how does it get in there? Um, And then you may be free for a little while. Yeah, but that's really hard for me because I was a lecturer before I even knew anything. And now I'm a professor who gets like paid to go on and on about stuff all the time. So my, my inclination, and then I'm an economist too. So my inclination is to like, I want to like draw them the graph. Like here's the income distribution in the United States and here's how it's different in San Francisco. And like, here's I where know. you know we might fit in and me like, here's too. the exact numbers. Cause like, I want to be honest with you. I want you to be fully informed about the world that you live in. So like, go here, here it all is. And, you know. Fortunately, yes. I've also, I ha- I've managed to teach my kids with my, and my wife has helped with this a lot, like when to just shut me down be like, dad, don't need that much information. <laughs> I, I stopped listening about five minutes ago. You got your key point across. It's good. Love you. Bye. Yeah. The but, other day uh, my husband yeah. was trying to explain like how like satellite GPS works to our six-year-old. And at some point he turned to somebody else, like to me and was like, does anyone understand what he's saying? Like, <laughs> no. Ridicule from kids is is the well it's the worst. It's, well, it's kind of the best. I don't know. I guess it different. I mean, it's kind of the best too. It's like okay, yeah, you got to take it because you know. Hopefully, well, I guess it depends on your relationship with your kids. But like you know, you can't hate your kids for like calling you out on stuff because usually they're just very direct and honest. They're like, oh, you're right. Um, anyway, uh, so all right. Um, well, we're we're running just about running out of time, but I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, what else, uh, what else are you working on now? So obviously I think you'll be busy, uh, you know, the next, um, I mean, you have classes starting in fall and you'll be busy promoting the book, but like, what are your kind of next, uh, big projects? So, you know, I've been working a lot on the COVID and school stuff over the last year, and we're kind of transitioning into basically producing a, a data project, data product that I think will be useful to researchers about kind of what happened on first schools or what school, what mode schools were in the U.S. were in over the last year. So I've been doing a lot of work, kind of organ, really organizational work, um, work on that. And I'm hoping it'll lead to some 
research stuff. And then, you know, I've been writing this, I write this newsletter and that's actually ended up being a fair amount of my time. And so I think that's, I'll probably end up doing a lot of that uh, at least over the next six months or so. And then we'll, we'll see where it goes. So how is, how is your, um, uh, how does your university and everyone feel about you doing stuff like creating a data product and writing a newsletter and writing, you know, popular press books, right? That doesn't certainly fit into the advice that people that, you know, academics get, uh, especially earlier in their career, right? You need to publish academic articles and that's, that's the currency you should be like pushing towards your Nobel prize until the day you drop, you know? Uh, so, uh, how do you, how do you balance that or what kind of feedback have you gotten and how do you think about that from the perspective of just like, I guess almost like a four F kind of thing, like, you know, what are your priorities and how do you make, how did you make those choices in your career? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I've made them sort of in, in sometimes more deliberately, deliberately than others. So I think I made a sort of like pretty haphazard choice in the first place to write Expecting Better, which was the first book um, before I had tenure, which is, I think, I, in the short term, exposed a mistake and the long term exposed more complicated. Um, but, uh, but then I've made sort of more, more deliberate choices. So the decision to, you know, write crib sheet and then ultimately to write, to write this book and kind of it, meant leaning into that particular identity. Um, and, you know, the university has been very, um, has been very supportive. I think some of the, um, you know, some of this kind of data work has led to research and I think will lead to research for, for others from, for me. So I think that's, um, that's kind of a more standard, I think that's sort of more standard than the, uh, than the books, but, you know, I, I do a lot of, um, administrative stuff at the university. So I chaired the tenure promotions committee, I was on that for a while. And so I, I sort of like, I, I give it the office in other ways, I think in, in some sense. Um, and so people, you know, people have just sort of gotten, gotten used to this is like the weird, the weird space that I'm, uh, that I'm in. But I also think, um, that I have made a very conscious choice to be in that, to be in that space. And it is one of the, the privileges of tenure to have been able to make that, uh, to make that choice. Right. Well, that's great. I mean, I think, you know, certainly, well, again, there's many ways to contribute, and obviously, you know, as an academic, I you know believe in the value of academic research, but I think also, yeah, bringing that research. I mean, education, right? That's kind of what we're doing, and so your books are are kind of a, a mass education thing, and you know, no one's paying uh, your university tuition for them, but uh, but you are uh, doing doing a public service. So I, I certainly appreciate them, and I know many many people do. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, that's about all the time we have. Um, so. Thanks so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed having you. Thank you so much for having me. This is great.